Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. Well, I suppose I should start by mentioning I am not Pastor Tim, um, <laughs> uh, in case anybody's new here. Uh, my name is Alex, and uh, I am a um, hopeful seminary student, not in seminary yet. Um, but uh, I suppose this is uh, Pastor Tim's uh, idea of trial by fire. So uh, I ask for your grace this morning. This is my first time delivering a, delivering a message. Um, so this past weekend, I, uh, I went to Lake George, and uh, I hurt myself. Um, wasn't too bad, obviously, I'm here. But um, could certainly could have been worse. I was... Uh, a little college reunion trip with some old friends, and we were out on the boat in the lake, and uh, we drove by a cliff, and on the cliff at various levels, there were kids jumping off into the water. Um, and uh, of course, you know, the boys all being together, we decided we had to do it. And so going out, and um, my wife was here, at home, she wasn't with us. But I knew that if she was there, she never would have let me do it. Um, as a matter of fact, it had come up before. This is an annual trip, and um, cliff jumping had been on the menu before, and uh, she had admonished me against it. But uh, I, so I, I knew she would be upset, but I also knew that she wouldn't be upset forever if I did it, that she would eventually forgive me. So uh, I went ahead and I climbed all the way up. It was about a 55-foot uh, jump, jump, um, and, uh, but the problem was nobody had coached me on how to land properly, tuck my arms in, and so I actually landed like I was sitting in a lawn chair, and I hit my tailbone, and, um, bruised up my legs pretty badly. My friends told me that the sound of my body hitting the water was like a thunderclap, um, so I woke up with my legs covered in really ugly bruises, so the, uh, the chance to hide it from Wendy had, that, that ship had kind of sailed at that point. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, all, you know, all said it wasn't too bad, but a couple degrees of rotation one way or the other could have been a lot worse. You know, I could have broken my neck. Um, I got lucky. Um, so it turns out she was right about uh, the cliff jumping, and she was mad at the time. But as I suspected, uh, she didn't stay mad forever. In fact, she's here today, so evidence of that. Um, I had thought, uh, I'm going to go ahead and do this thing that I want to do, that I know I shouldn't do, but I know that Wendy will forgive me anyway, so it's, uh, so it's fine. Uh, turned out to not be so fine. Uh, and I wondered, um, do we sometimes have this same attitude towards God? Um, Paul certainly thought it was an issue. Um, and it's actually... As a matter of fact, I should probably read the, uh, well, we'll just go through it straight. Paul certainly thought it was an issue. At the beginning of Romans chapter 6, he writes, make sure I can work this, there we go. By the way, I apologize for the slides, the formatting's all messed up, you know, it's my first time, so. <laughs> um, Paul writes, what shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? This is the central question that we're looking at today. A uh, question that Paul addressed to the Christian church in Rome 
a question that anticipates a potential pitfall concerning grace and our understanding of it. Um, of course, logically, we all know the answer to this question is no, but is it really quite that simple? Uh, after all, we're in the same place in redemptive history as the people to whom Paul wrote this letter. Uh, even though 2,000 years separate us, we're both living in the time between Christ's death and resurrection and his return, so we aren't so different. And uh, Paul saw fit to warn them against this pitfall. Um, and so we ought to take heed. Uh, so let's delve a little deeper and see if we can unpack Paul's concern here and what he may be trying to warn us against. Um, so how did we get to this question? A few verses earlier, in chapter five, Paul says, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here Paul is talking about our inheritance through Adam, his guilt, um, his sinful nature, how we deserve God's punishment, and then draws the distinction between the actions of Adam and the actions of Jesus, and the implications of each for us. Uh, Adam's disobedience made us sinners, and Jesus' obedience makes us righteous. So we can see now how Paul's question follows. If Jesus has taken care of sin, why not go on sinning? If we're covered by his grace, then why should we worry about sin at all? We know we don't merit God's favor through our righteous action. So if the work is done for us, why should we bother going through the work of striving for righteousness? In fact, could it even be good to sin as that would cause God's grace to abound even more? Within his discussion of grace, Paul worried enough about this potential objection to address it head on. So we sh too should be duly concerned with it. Um, it might be helpful here to consider who we were before we experienced Jesus' grace. Um, I myself grew up without the gift of faith. Um, for the first 22 years of my life, I didn't know Jesus. I can recall contemplating my place within the universe and experiencing feelings of uncertainty, fear of the unknown, even nihilism. I remember the feeling of staring into an uncaring void thinking about the vastness of the universe and feeling a sort of hopelessness. Which is not a feeling that I miss, but in a way I'm grateful for those years because I now have a ready perspective on what it was like to be a non-believer. I know precisely who I was before I opened my heart to Christ. And um, what's surprising in retrospect uh, is that in those years I didn't struggle with sin. Um, I didn't struggle with sin because I didn't understand the seriousness of sin, but also because, as we'll see a little later, I wasn't able to struggle with it. Unbeknownst to me at the time, I was powerless against it. Um, especially as a, as a young man, um, the things that we know to be offensive to God are encouraged by our society. Covetousness, pride, lust. Um, I didn't even understand those things as wrong. Um, I worried about being punished, I worried about how I would be perceived by my peers, but I didn't worry about the nature of sin itself. I didn't understand what it meant outside of the immediate consequences. 
uh, I couldn't even see most of it, truthfully. So um, I thought of, in terms of being a good person, on balance. Uh, if there was an afterlife, God would be weighing my good actions against my bad. So what happened between then and now? This brings us to the answer to our question, which Paul gives straight away in verse 2. There it is. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Paul answers his first question with another question. What is he getting at here? He's framed the answer as a question, but it's rhetorical uh, and meant to make a statement. A statement that there is an inherent contradiction between having come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and living willfully in sin. So how does Paul want us to understand this contradiction? What is he pointing to in terms of the difference between our past self and our current selves under God's grace? Let's read on verses three and four. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is reminding us here that as converted Christians, we haven't signed up to just be members of Jesus' club. A grave and significant change has taken place. And there's a real difference now between who we were and who we are now in Christ. When I was baptized in 2014, in a tiny little church in rural Indiana, I thought of it as a cleansing experience and sort of a ceremonial demonstration of my faith, which it is, um, but at the time I didn't comprehend the full weight of what my baptism meant. And it's a beautiful demonstration, these verses, to understand um, Paul is indicating that we have become spiritually participants in Jesus' death. We don't just check a few boxes, do a little ceremony, show up on Sunday. We are different. We've been changed. Our Savior was dead and buried, and in a spiritual sense, we were dead and buried with him. The previous self, the self that was ruled by sin, the self that bore the responsibility of Adam's disobedience, hasn't just been changed, but was buried along with Jesus. A new self has emerged, and as we'll continue to see, it's not a casual change that can be reversed. Um, and another, from another perspective, uh, Paul's reference to Christ's death here, we are reminded of the consequence of sin. Uh, we are reminded that God takes so, sin so seriously that Jesus had to be dead and buried to defeat it. If we know Jesus, if we truly love him, how can we go on willfully sinning, knowing that what he endured because of sin? Knowing the cost of those sins that he must pay. It's as though we knew our spouse was going to be going to prison in place for us, for our crimes. Would we go on committing more and more crimes knowing that they were going to take the fall for us? Of course we wouldn't. Paul is indicating the contradiction here that if we've truly been baptized in the Holy Spirit, that we wouldn't go on living willfully in sin. The understanding of what our sin has done and is still doing should convict us and it should hurt us as it hurts him. But of course we do, we do continue to sin. And so there's a tension here within our current state as believers. We're blessed with the indwelling spirit and yet we continue to sin, so how do we reconcile that? Let's see what Paul says in verse five. 
For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This verse represents a pivot point in the passage. In verses one through four, Paul introduces a question, answers it, and gives us the significance of Jesus' death and our baptism, connecting the two, reminding us of the seriousness and the transformative nature of our conversion. The way I understand this verse, and Pastor Tim will be pleased on the recording to hear me use this phrase, is that Paul is referring to the now and the not yet of the kingdom. Christ has defeated death and sin. The work is finished, and yet his work in us is not yet complete. We are still in progress. We still have contact with sin. And within this verse, we notice there are two separate tenses. We have been, and we shall certainly be. We have been united to him, and so we are under grace. And we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are both both currently saved and not yet complete. We're being molded and the marks of our old lives are still on us. Who we were is still relevant as we settle into who we are and who we will be. We were under the headship of Adam who deliberately disobeyed God, chose to go his own way and we followed. We were in open rebellion against the almighty God of the universe. That's who we were. And though we've been adopted back into his family, we still have a bit of that rebellious nature in us. It's a process, and the process is still underway. I like to think of it this way, and I think Pastor Tim has used this analogy before, but if you think of it in terms of two worldly families, um, the first with a lying and abusive father, when the children are encouraged to steal, commit crime, addicted that's where we were that was our family and we know who our father was then we were headed for prison death no prospects of a fulfilled life but there's a second family wealthy charitable a family that cares for provides for the abundance of its children that's the family that we were adopted into and we've been afforded all of the privileges that come with being with that adoption but we still have some of those old habits. We're used to stealing and lying. So from time to time, someone like Paul has to come along and remind us, hey, you're part of God's family now. We don't conduct ourselves that way. But in fact, Paul treats the change from our old selves even more severely than that. In verse six, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So here we get another clue about who we were before we came under God's grace. As Paul indicates here, we were enslaved to sin. And so without Christ's death on the cross, resistance to sin was not an option. Before coming to saving grace in Christ, sin was not something that we toyed with or struggled with sometimes choosing to engage, sometimes resisting out of our own power. Sin was our master, and we were helpless against it. Now we are free to choose. We're free to turn away from sin. We are free to choose righteousness. 
verse 7, we read, For one who has died has been set free from sin. So here's the picture that Paul is painting for us. Before, before being saved, slavery, helpless, helplessness, spiritual death, unable to choose, unable to do anything to save ourselves from death and hell and eternal separation from God. And then in the spiritual sense, we pass through death with Christ and we shed that old self. And now we are free to choose the path to God. Now we live with Christ, with the indwelling spirit. In verse eight, now if we, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. What does it mean to live with Christ? We're standing with Christ and Jesus is saying, he or she is with me. Because our old souls died when he died, we get to go where he goes. We get to live because he lives. We are so close to him that we get credit for his righteousness. It's like we were walking around all day with the president. Every time you tried to go somewhere you wouldn't normally be allowed to go, the president just said, it's okay, he's with me. Everywhere you went, doors would open, not because of who we are, but because you're with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. So what does that mean for us, for our new selves? What does Christ's victory over death teach us about our relationship to sin? Since Adam, we were under the dominion of death and sin. There was no way for us to escape out of our own power. When Jesus was resurrected, he defeated death. And as Paul says, it no longer had dominion over him. As he defeated death, he defeated sin as well. Verses 10 and 11 say, for the death he died, he died to sin once and for all, once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What Paul is pointing to here is our participation as believers in a spiritual sense in Christ's death and his resurrection. A parallel is drawn between the prior dominion of death and its defeat and the prior dominion of sin and its defeat. As Christians, we've gone, undergone a radical transformation, and part of what we must understand about the death and resurrection is the transformative power of it. Death and life, slavery and freedom, there are two side, these are two sides of the coin that we need to see, the difference between who we were then and who we are now. Our old self, the self that was under the dominion of sin and death is dead. Paul is, through his precise language, drawing a clear line of distinction between who we were before the death and resurrection and who we are now. We don't oscillate back and forth between identities. We don't slip in and out of the bondage of sin. If we have truly put our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation, then he has saved us and that cannot be undone. Just as death cannot reclaim its authority over him, so too is it true that the sin that once reigned over us cannot re-enslave us, 
now that has been defeated by Jesus. And so we understand through Paul that our new selves are radically different than our old selves. We've experienced a spiritual death and resurrection, rescued by God through Christ to enjoy all the privileges of being his children. So armed with this understanding, we've laid a foundation for our understanding of our relationship to sin as followers of Jesus Christ. Here we come to the crescendo of Paul's point in this passage. He opened by posing a question, are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? He followed it up by calling our attention to Jesus' death, reminding us of the seriousness of sin, the spiritual death and resurrection we experienced through our submission to Christ. In verses one through 11, Paul has shown us that there is a definitive, bold line between our present and our past selves as believers. We were slaves to sin, but we are no longer those people. And so on the foundation of that, the passage closes with an admonishment from Paul in verses 12 through 14. Verse 12 says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. On its surface, this verse might seem confusing considering what we've just seen. How can sin possibly reign in our bodies if it's been defeated? Just a moment ago in verse six, Paul said, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So why does Paul now have to give us this instruction? Why do we have to be on our guard against sin? Well, we can think of this in terms of what we've learned about who we were. We know from reading through the passage so far that we were, before coming to saving grace in Christ, we were slaves to sin, meaning that we were not a people who struggled and chose sin, but a people who just sinned helplessly, having no choice but to do so. And so the distinction to notice here is that sin enslaved us and God freed us we no longer have to sin, but as God's children, we are still free to do so. Indeed, it still appeals to us. Think about the depth of love that's implicit in that. God made us truly free, and that includes the freedom to commit sin that he takes the punishment for. So now we have this choice to make. Paul is reminding us that we have a choice. We are not choosing one action over another in order to earn God's favor or to earn our salvation. Christ has already done that. Read on verse 13. Paul says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So Paul puts a finer point on his same warning here, and in so doing, he implies that we have control over what is done with our minds and our bodies. 
Again, the same important distinction arises between our past and present selves. We did not have control when sin ruled us. We could not choose to offer our members to God as instruments of righteousness, nor could we choose to offer ourselves up to sin. Sin controlled us regardless of what we chose. Now, because of what Christ has done, we can do either. Though he is the almighty creator, and we are his creation and his children, he's given us complete and total control over our bodies and our minds. Complete and total freedom, which by definition must mean the freedom also to sin. Again, once we were slaves to sin, but now we are free in Christ Jesus. Sin enslaved us. Christ freed us. Finally, in verse 14, Paul writes, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. God gave us the law to show us what his sin had done to us. The law revealed how desperately sick we were, how depraved, how helpless. It showed us that sin was our master showed us that we were powerless to master it by ourselves. And then God offered his grace through Jesus Christ to free us. My wife didn't tell me to stay away from that cliff because she was trying to ruin my fun. She didn't want me to get hurt. She knows I have responsibilities children, and I can't take care of them if I'm paralyzed or dead. I'm paying the price for that jumping now, but the price could have been much higher. So what are we risking when we abuse God's grace? God doesn't want us to not sin because he wants us to be miserable. He doesn't want us to choose righteousness because he wants to control us. He's God. That's what he wanted, he could just do it. But he made us free. Sin wanted to control us. Sin is what makes us miserable. Sin causes shame, grief, sorrow, regret, pain. Yet it is tempting. And yes, we will sometimes slip up, and yes, God will even forgive us when we do so. But let's not forget what it costs to free us. Let's not forget how much he detests sin and how much he loves us and how much we love him. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly knowing as your followers, as your children, what our sin has done to your son Jesus, Lord. We come before you humbling, humbly knowing the cost that was paid to free us from sin's power. Lord, it is a gift that we can't even comprehend, that we could never repay. The only thing that we could do, Lord, is lift up our hands in worship. Worship you with all our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. We offer up 
our bodies and our hearts to you as instruments of your righteousness. Would you help us to turn away from sin? Because you hate sin. We hate sin as well. We love you, Jesus. Would you guide us? Would you live in our hearts? We open our hearts to you, Lord. We don't want to hide anything from you. If we're hiding, would you shine a light in those dark corners of our hearts, Lord? Help us to become even more fully awake to your grace. Help us to fully understand what your grace means, Lord. The immense power of that gift. We lift up our voices and our praise to you. Would you stand as we respond in worship? Thank you again for listening to today's sermon. For more resources and information about Goodwill Church, visit goodwillchurch.org. God bless.